Hi everyone and welcome back to the Grad Life podcast. Holly here and today I'm very excited to be speaking with Evan McLaughlin. Evan is CEO and co-founder of the language learning startup Weave. As a student who studied neuroscience in college, Evan takes us through his path to becoming an entrepreneur, giving us some great insight into the risks and rewards of creating your own company. Hi Evan, thanks so much for giving us your time to be on the podcast. How are you getting on? Thanks so much. Yeah, very good. Um, it's been a very, very busy few weeks, but I'm happy to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. Great to hear. So, Evan, you've got quite a unique background in terms of your career as you're an entrepreneur. So you're also the first entrepreneur I've interviewed for the podcast. So I'm really looking forward to hearing about your story and your trajectory with your company Weave. So for you, I guess it all started out in Trinity studying science, if I'm correct, yes, which I guess when you look at where you've ended up, I guess you might not expect someone like yourself to have a background in this area. So do you think studying science contributed to where you ended up today or was it just something you were interested in when you left school? Yeah, this is a really good question. Um, the more founders I've talked to, um, the more I think it's it's not that relevant what, what degree you do in terms of being able to set up a startup. I think to set up a tech company, you need probably one technical founder. But beyond that, not studying business or anything really doesn't disadvantage you that much. Um, I wouldn't say there's a whole lot of transferable skills that I got through my science degree, but most of the things you learn are like how to write effectively, you know, like the how to distill information and present. Like all of these things are so much more fundamental to kind of communicating an idea to a customer, to an investor, to whoever you're trying to sell your idea to then kind of the understanding business structures or shares or anything like that. And um, so I think any sort of degree that you have to take in information and distill it and be able to figure out how to communicate it to people is very, very beneficial. Um, but other than that, it's hard to say I've been able to use much of my degree in, in what I'm doing today. It's, it's definitely driven me from a, from a motivation point of view. I'm, from a, I'm fascinated in the brain, how the brain processes information and how it learns. So obviously running an ed tech startup, that kind of drives the fascination and, and the motivation behind all of, all of the startups and kind of my intrinsic want, wanting to understand how things work. Um, and that makes me very motivated to get up every morning and do kind of the day-to-day the -day grind sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would say that um, I think people look too much about that particular degree. And if you have, have an idea, just go for it and you kind of pick up everything as you go. Yeah, absolutely. No, I've noticed from speaking to a few people that their undergrad can sometimes be a far cry from where they actually end up. So no, you're definitely right there. It's not always extremely important. Um, but yeah, so then right after college, you went straight into the Launchbox Accelerator program and you were working full time here on your startup Diglot. Is, am I saying that correctly? I'm not sure. Well, um, Diglot, but yeah, it's actually Diglot, okay. the reason we changed it is because no one could pronounce it. I see. Okay. That was a great call then. Um, and so this was the same company as we've just under different branding. Okay. Um, so first of all, maybe if you want to give the listeners just a brief description of what Weave is and what it has to offer. Yeah, happy to. Um, so I guess I'll start back at Diglot and kind of bring through the story because I think it's quite interesting. And when I say it's the same company, it technically is, but on, we, we've pivoted so many times and changed that it's almost not, you know, as well. Yeah. 
Um, so we started off back in June 2020, one of the first lockdowns. Um, and we wanted, we had this idea to weave foreign words into English sentences, me and my, my co-founder Keen. Um, so we thought, how do we validate this idea very quickly? So we got, to, we got a Sherlock Holmes script, which is public domain, which means it's accessible to everyone. And we kind of manually Google translated a couple of words per sentence. It was agonizingly manual and very inefficient and just kind of grinded through that first book and um, went on Fiverr, got, got a cover artist to make the cover uh, and kind of just really quickly printed off that book, released it um, and kind of put it in people's hands. Uh, and it was truly the ugliest thing I've ever seen, this book. <laughs> I, I'm not underselling that, you know, the it, like it, it's terrifyingly ugly, the formatting, the everything. But we just wanted to, to produce the concept on some small scale, get into a customer's hands. Yeah. Uh, and it turns out that even in this really kind of horrible duct tape together form, people actually enjoyed it. You know, people were reading the English and being like, wow, I actually cannot believe that the Spanish word is just coming to me, not, not through a translation, not through anything else, but it's just coming to me. So that's the fundamental idea that we have is that you basically are reading in context and you're understanding the word with the information you have in that sentence and not through memorizing, not through translating. And that's what produces actual native speakers. Like if you're talking to a bilingual speaker, they don't need to translate in their head and then speak. They just understand that, con that context, that meaning to the word. Um, so we started off producing that book and we republished that I think four times now. And it's, it's way better now, it's much nicer. Um, but over about an 18 month period, we expanded out our book collections, expanded out our languages to the point that we have now 40 books in 11 different languages. We've sold in 29 different countries. Um, you can access our books on our website. Um, kind of six months ago, though, we took a different stance with the company and we're thinking, OK, we have this weave technique. People really enjoy it, you know, and um, people seem to be learning from it. But how do we really bring it to scale and really provide the most immersive experience that we can? So we built out our app. So it was always kind of an idea to build an app. We just never really had the foundations to do it or the ability to do it. So there's this platform called Bubble, and it's this it's part of this kind of no code movement to empower everyone to kind of become a developer. And if anyone is listening that hasn't used Bubble, please try it out. You can actually build anything. It's pretty amazing. Um, wow. It's not the simplest thing to learn, but I'd say, you know, after a couple of weeks of kind of grinding away, you, anyone can build almost anything. Um, so we built our entire MVP in Bubble. Um, my co-founder, Keen, basically learned the platform as he built. Um, we were able to start uploading our books onto that app and people can now change the level of translation within the text. So where we are, where we were six months ago was we had our classic books like Pride and Prejudice, Great Gatsby, Sherlock Holmes, all of the books that we've published in paperback form, they were on the app, but then people could change the translation. So that was the main difference is that anywhere between zero to 50% and um, someone could try find their perfect level. Um, you know, one of the problems with the books was that someone would buy them, but they say, you know, this bit's a bit too easy, this bit's a bit too hard. They couldn't perfectly match to their level. So the idea of the app is that when you're reading, you have a little slider at the bottom and it dynamically controls the amount of Spanish, French, Japanese, whatever language you're learning within the text. So you always have enough context that you can understand the story. And then if a page is too difficult, you just swipe it back and um, all of that. So in the last kind of two months, we've pivoted away from that even, sorry, it's a, it's a long jagged 
kind of pathway, but I think it's interesting to bring you through it because people often have a way to gloss their idea of how get, how you get from A to B. And, you know, the, the analogy is always that it's just, it's way more jaggedy and turny than usual. So it's, I think it's useful to bring it through. Um, so about a month ago, we dispatched of the classic books. And now what we're doing is we're taking the top kind of must read books, say like Atomic Habits or Sapiens or all these, or, you know, the Lean Startup, all these kind of books. And we're getting a team of writers to distill them into summaries. So then we're, so we're up, uploading those summaries onto the app. So now you can read 15 minute summaries of the top most read books and you can have full control of the, of the level of translation from 0% to 100%. So it's not just that 15 now, but it's 100. Um, and we also have full audio capabilities on the app. So if you don't know how to pronounce a word, you tap it, it gives you a perfect pronunciation. Um, and we also have an audio book mode. So you can just tap play, put it in your pocket and listen. Um, so really, we're all about providing the most engaging, interesting content for people, and then they're going to learn another language seamlessly as they go. Um, so that's kind of where we're at now. Um, we're very, very excited about the current product, and the, the response has been really, really good, because um, we're really bridging that gap between a person who wants to engage with the language but just can't find an interesting way to do it. You know, we're we're kind of letting people engage with content that they love and would have read anyway. Like these summaries are things that people would just read anyway, but you're able to seamlessly acquire that secondary language when you're doing it. And you're actually able to do it very quickly and um, much quicker than people kind of usually think when they hear about the idea. Um, so I guess that's a, a pretty decent overview of kind of where we started and where we are now. Yeah, brilliant. It sounds like even just within the last few months, you've come a long way. And I was going to actually ask you, I suppose, what your sort of target audience was, but you answered my question there with, you know, being able to change the level um, of difficulty within the reading. Like, that's great. Um, but yeah, I'm also curious how, I guess, this business idea came about. So during your time at college, um, what came first for you, like the actual business idea for Weave? Or did you just know that you wanted to start your own company without yet knowing what exactly it might be? Yeah, this is a funny one. Um, so starting off, we didn't think that this was going to be our job after college. So we started, I think, just before going into fourth year in college. So just before the busiest time in our life. So like we were, we were kind of just doing it with the attitude of let's build something, put something out into the world, and then we'll learn something. And um, we were both like, it'll probably fail in three months. And we'll probably just go back to college and we'll learn something from that process. And at least we can say that we went out there, we tried to do something um, and, you know, it didn't work out, but we learned a lot. We never really expected to get all of the supports that we got throughout Trinity. Um, and then we kind of, you know, we were getting sales, we were getting revenue, we were winning competitions and we were having users that were coming to us actually saying, we love your product. Like, this is amazing. We were like, wow, that's a that's a shock. You know, we didn't actually expect to build like, you know, we obviously that was the hope, but we didn't at any stage, I think, in those early days, think that this was going to be a full time job. Like now we have four core salaried people, you know, and another part time and we work with a lot of translators. So we have full salary teams now and it's a whole different situation. And um, but we never set out that way. And kind of when we got to the end of the year of, of college, we knew that this was going to be our full-time position. We just loved it so much. We knew this was going to be full-time that we worked on it full-time for a year without earning a cent. You know, like we were doing 70 hour weeks every week without exception, without earning a cent. You know, this, this month is actually the first month that we've gotten a salary. 
Oh, wow. which feels fantastic it feels yeah great. it must it must yeah it feels i think i think if you calculate the hours it works out that maybe like six cents an hour because of how many hours it's worked over the time wow. but, but like it, it's phenomenally it's phenomenal but the i guess the the piece of information there is that if you want to make money startups is not actually the way to do it <laughs> and a lot of people go into it with that sort of guy is that like oh my god we're going to get acquired in two years and we're going to have all these salaries it's like not likely um, likely you're going to most like I'd say in nine out of 10 circumstances, you're working for a year or two without getting any money. And then most of them fail. And then if you make some money, it's still many, many years until you get what you could do at a big corporation. Um, that isn't to dissuade anyone from entrepreneurship, because I think it's absolutely the career path people should take. But you have to go into it with the right idea and the right mindset and if you go if you go in expecting to make money and that's the way that's the reason you're doing it, I think you'll burn out and, and it won't work. Um, because honestly, it's just, it's, it's, it's a lot of grinding and not very much reward in the early days. Uh, and if you yeah. think you make 60 K in a year, you're better off in consultancy because that's just yeah. where you do it, you know? Yeah. Well, as you said, it is a learning curve and I'm sure you've gained some invaluable experience. So it definitely sounds like it's worth it. Um, but back to, I suppose, like the idea of your company, did you always have an interest in learning new languages, let's say, or did you and your co-founder just spot a gap in the market for this type of product? No. So I despise languages, interestingly enough. Um, it was Keen who, my, my co-founder Keen McNally, who came up with the idea and was kind of the, you know, the, 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 the Steve Jobs genius behind the whole thing. You know? <laughs> He's the guy that's always like innovating on language learning techniques. Um, and he, he speaks a number of languages himself. Um, I've always been obsessed with learning. So I'm kind of agnostic to what the learning is, no matter what domain. Um, but I hated languages in school more than anything. I actually got the worst possible grade in Irish in the Leaving Cert, where they'll still let you into college. Um, <laughs> which is, I think in 06, which is actually so embarrassing now to be a CEO of, of a language learning company. Um, but I like to tell that story because like, I hated it so much because of the, the methodology that they employed to get people to learn it, you know, sitting there and memorizing lists and then memorizing irregular verbs and looking at grammar exercises. And like when Keen came to me with the idea, he was like, Evan, you can weave words into sentences and just read. And because I loved reading, I've always been a big reader. So I, I've always read books. And he said, look, I can actually just weave Spanish into your book and you'll and you can learn some Spanish. And I was like, no way. That's no way. Like. Um, and he did it like he did it in his very like terrible crude way and I, I read the book and it was 10 percent in Spanish and I was like we're starting a company we're doing this now you know I, I was so amazed at this completely new way of learning a language that I'd never heard of before and I thought if I hated languages and this method that kind of spoke to me and made me like incentivized and motivated to learn language then maybe there's other people out there as well that would do the same um, so I guess that answers it, that I hated languages, Keen loved them, and then we both loved them, but through this new kind of way of learning. Yeah, no, that's great. I absolutely love the irony there. Um, yeah. That's brilliant. Um, but yeah, again, back to the Launchpad Accelerator program. So how exactly did you get involved in this initiative in Trinity? And like, how did it work? Did you have to pitch your business idea before getting it accepted? Or how did it work in, in college for you? Yeah, so the funny thing is, is that when we started off, we had no idea these things existed. And I think that's kind of the opposite to most people. Um, and that kind of was our advantage in a lot of ways, because we set this up not knowing it existed and not knowing that anything was going to come from it. But a lot of people see Launchbox and try to create a startup, but that's kind of the inver inverse order to what you should be doing in ideal circumstance. Yeah. 
ideally you come up with a problem where you find a problem you come up with a solution to that problem and then there happens to be supports to nurture that solution but if you're trying to like retroactively produce a solution for a problem that's for a competition you're kind of forcing it you know and there's some people that make it work and just happen to land on one um but i think most of the time it's it's optimal to really look look at the world you know try and find the problem you want to solve come up with a solution and then you do have to pitch it to get into those launchbox accelerator um which is a great idea um and i think that the accelerator program is fantastic but there's also some things I think people should be wary about with those sort of competitions. And it's one of the mistakes I think that we made is that um, all of these competitions were coming up and people kept telling us, you know, you should apply for this, you should do this. Um, and we were doing it and we were successful in them. And we thought that this success in the competitions and success throughout Launchbox was a proxy for success in the business. And it's not because one thing your customers do not care about is how many competitions you've won. They care about if your product is good and it makes them give them something gives them value so i think for too long and i'm not again accelerators are amazing everyone should do them but make sure that it's not a proxy for how you develop your product and how you talk to your customers because if you you can come first in launchbox and come first in all these competitions because your pitch and your story is great but your product still might be terrible and nothing else really matters in those early days than making a product for a small group of people that just love it um but yeah sorry to go back to the to the process of getting in so there's it was multiple stages of pitching so you generally put together a five minute pitch and there's an audience of judges and then you get allocated a spot based on who has the best pitch and um, so i think there's probably three i think there's probably three stages of pitching where um i think the first step is a business plan so you put together the the value proposition the problem you're solving how you're going to um how you're going to solve it, all of that, your business model, how you're going to make money. Um, then they then they invite you to pitch. You do a five-minute presentation. All of this was over Zoom for us, which was quite strange. Um, I actually did my first in-person pitch like, a, like three weeks ago, which is kind right. of bizarre because I've been I've done maybe a hundred pitches now over the last two years, just all online. That's um, wild. We did the whole, we did all the pitching process for Launchbox online and did the entire Launchbox program online. And that program really is fantastic. The mentors and supports you get there is unrivaled, and it's a it's an incredible privilege that we get that students in Ireland can can avail of that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I would I would advise those those programs one hundred percent. Yeah, no, definitely having those supports in college are really encouraging for anyone like yourself. But what sort of perks? would you get as of being a part of this program? Is it mainly mentorship or what did you find impacted your company the most? Yeah, this is a good question because everyone thinks that the 10 grand is what's important and 10 grand is really not. Like 10 grand is not nothing by any means, but like you'll probably spend that 10 grand making mistakes and that's actually probably how it should be spent, weirdly enough. Um, I think it's rare that someone knows exactly what to do with 10 grand and they are actually able to attribute that capital in an effective way or in the early days. What's really valuable is the network. So it's ridiculous, the network that Trinity has. So like in the early days, um, you don't have anything going for you, really. You know, you're really grasping at straws in terms of trying to convince anyone why the hell would they buy your product? So getting in touch with these contacts where there's these big organizations that can give you lots of advice, partnerships, like all of those things, they can do it basically for free. 
Um, a lot of these big, um, you know, big CEOs, big, all of these people love mentoring um, and they love giving back. And the, the value that you're able to get from that as a fledgling little startup that really hasn't done anything yet is absolutely incredible. Um, you can piggyback a lot on their sort of success. And I think it's what you have to do because you just don't have enough to stand on your own two feet yet. Um, so it really is the mentorship, the guidance, like you have workshops, you have three to three to four workshops a week where you go through all these different things, um, like how to build a product, how to scale, how to pitch, um, legal stuff. There's lots of legal stuff that everyone hates doing, but they're able to handle for you pretty, pretty well. Um, so really it is that network. It's, it's also great to be in an environment where people are similar to you. So like you get into that cohort and you know, each team has two to three people, maybe four founders. Um, so there's 30 or 40 people that are very like-minded and trying to just build something, um, trying to put something out in the world, get some feedback from customers and then build again. And being in that sort of environment really helps you believe that you can do it. You know, it really reinforces that idea that this actually is, is a path that I could go down, especially as a science student, when there's very few science students that do startups. Um, they don't tell us that this is a career path in science, you know, like the, they only tell us academia existed until I got into places like Launchbox where they were like, you should go for this. You, this could be your job. You could have huge value. You can have impact. And it's actually kind of rare that people tell you that, you know, like can they actually tell you that you can have an impact in the world? Like the things that you do can really make a difference. And you only really need like one customer to reinforce that idea until you're like, I'm fully sold. But Launchbox is the best stepping stone to get there um, to really give you the encouragement and empowerment to go build yourself, you know, and I, that's an underrated thing that I think shouldn't be so absent in our in our sort of society and structure, but it is. People aren't told they can have that impact and people aren't told they can be an entrepreneur, um, but I think it's, it's, it's beautiful that they can and they should be getting that encouragement. And that's yeah, absolutely. I can imagine it's definitely quite inspiring to be surrounded by so many like-minded people and then all also being able to take advantage of people around you with a lot of advice and wisdom so again yeah it seems to be a great resource to have um fantastic. yeah fantastic yeah so as a young person starting your own company you've got nothing to lose but I guess also everything to learn so how did you find the transition from going from a very structured college life college life to working entirely on your own schedule mm. It's tough. It's tough because it's it's really difficult to balance things in the early days. Like, as you say, the college, maybe you have two to three deadlines at once, but those deadlines are set by other people, enforced by other people, and you have accountability by from your professors, from your lecturers, all of that. Um, so it is very, very different to hold yourself accountable. Um, it's very, very difficult to know how to attribute your time, especially in the early days and how well to do it. Like that might, that might also seem strange, but you, like, you can't do everything to the best of your ability. Like there's this, there's this concept, I think, um, that's been one of the most profound concepts that I've learned that I think everyone should apply, which is just the 80-20 rule. You know, how do you get 80% of the impact for 20% of the effort? Um, this is something that I didn't do correctly in the early days. And I just, I was spread way too thin and I was doing nothing, 80, even 80% of the way there because I was doing like 25 things at once. You know, like Patrick Collison says that uh, running a startup is like riding a unicycle while juggling, while um, blowing fire in the dark. 
So you're just like doing six things at once and you don't even know where you're going. Um, and that's kind of true. And you kind of just have to get used to that ambiguity. And you have to get used to the fact that what you're doing is going to have uncertain results. Like that's almost the definition of a startup is that what you're doing is going to have uncertain results. Um, and it's something you grow better at. Um, I think something, an important thing to do is just communicate a lot with your team. Um, make sure you get those agile sessions where your team are getting together and coordinating your vision. So I guess the way to hold yourself accountable and to go from the structured environment to unstructured is to, to have a really tight knit team and just always be communicating with them because it's way too easy when you're your own boss to go off and do things that you think might be right and just waste months developing something that doesn't make any sense. So you can, you can have, you can build that structure and that accountability within the team. Um, and I think that is what's needed to do, be done for like long-term kind of productive and consistent execution of ideas. Amazing. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. Um, and then getting a startup off the ground obviously takes a lot of work. So could you maybe give us some insight into maybe your first sort of year developing the company and maybe even give us a few examples of dilemmas people might not even consider when starting a company? Yeah. So again, I think one of the most, one of the most important things to do when you're starting off in a company is to look for positive sum gains. So what I mean by that is relationships you can have with other people and other organizations where you can provide value for them and they can provide value for you because you can't really in the early days just go to people you don't have the money to throw around for one so you don't have money to slap on marketing well if you do great but most people don't have any money to throw around so you have to look for where you can provide value with the only thing you have so what we did was we had one book it was terrible but we knew that the one way that could provide value for someone was in this Instagram community called Bookstagrammers. So what these Bookstagram influencers do, and there's infinite of them, and they have somewhere between like 10,000 and 100,000 followers on Instagram. And what they do is they love reading books and they love talking about their books to customers, uh, to their followers. Like, um, So the thing that we did in the early days was send them the books and we would get posts in return. So that was the value that we could provide for them was wow, this is interesting. Like I love Pride and Prejudice, but I've never read it 30% in Spanish. You know, like that, like even though the book was quite bad and didn't have all the value there, it could still provide valuable content for the influencer. So like if we found that we were able to get extremely cheap marketing this way, so it cost us five, six, seven euro to send a book to someone in the UK. And then we could get a couple of hundred followers from it because they posted on their channel. Um, they're usually like pretty talented photographers. So we also got content out of it. it actually worked out way better than we ever thought. Um, but like, you just have to find the places where even when you don't have a lot going for you, where can you provide value for other people so that you can get the trickle down value for them, for, for, yeah, for you. Cause like, if they have 10,000 followers, it doesn't take very much for them to receive a book, take a picture and make a post. But for you, it could be 10, 20, 30 sales. You could triple your audience. You could 100x your audience. Um, so like one of the things I think you have to do in those early days when you're building is just look for those positive sum relationships. Where can you add value? Um, and it gets easier because those early days when you have one follower, it takes a thousand messages to get two influencers to take you on. Um, like now we people obviously are reaching out to us and we have organizations reaching out to us and it's a completely different situation. But when you don't have any leverage, 
you just have to really break apart what value you can give to an organization or what value you can give to a person because that's how you can get trickled down value from them um i think that was that's one of the most important things and why a lot of people don't get off the ground and they don't look for where they can provide the most value for their people right away um, because the value, like it could be massively non-linear in terms of what you're what you give, like five, six euro for what you can get. Get. So I guess look for those non-linear um positive sum games. Um in terms of dilemmas, there's just so many. It's so hard to know what to do going like it go when you're at the start. Like I know a lot of people do stuff like incorporation and legal stuff, get that all out of the way first. I personally don't think that's essential to do right away. Um People that like to get their accountants in right away, personally don't think that's important. People that like to do all their branding, have all their titles, have an organizational chart where you have like your CEO, your CTO, none of it's important. Um, so I guess the dilemma is don't worry about any of the crap that people do at the start to look like they're big and mighty and just focus on talking to customers and building a product that people love. Um, it's really all that matters. And the front end stuff of seeming big might be useful down the line it just doesn't compensate for a good product um and really do all of that stuff after you have a base of what your what your um company does and really that's another thing is that get, get those values and get that product mission down early um because it's very easy to think you're very aligned with your founders and what you're building and um, but i've found that not to be the case in most situations um so always communicate with them have a very, very solid idea of what you want to do and be very narrowly focused on what you want to build. Um, do not spread yourself too thin. Um, we we like went down many paths that did not result in any value as we expanded in our languages. So we have like Japanese book, a Korean book, an Afrikaans book. These were pretty nightmarish to produce. Very difficult, you know, it, it like not only has no one really weaved Spanish or French into English before in this sort of way, but Japanese, Mandarin, Korean, where you don't even use the same alphabet. That was like a really fun challenge, but really we shouldn't have touched it for like months because we didn't have a brilliant Spanish product yet. So why were we building a Japanese product? It's not like the Japanese product that was going to be as good, if not worse than the Spanish one was going to just resonate and take off. We really should have just been iterating more on one smaller thing than just going so wide. Um, and it's it, it's really difficult to stay focused because it's it's really because it's like you really want to do all these things um but it just doesn't help stay focused stay narrow build one thing for 10 people that they love and then go outwards yeah no it sounds like you definitely have to juggle a lot of things at once there but i like your strategy of just diving right in and not worrying about the small stuff and that's also some great advice about those positive sum relationships and gaining that mutual benefit for yourself and someone else. I personally wouldn't have thought of that myself. So that's great. Um, but another question I have for you is surrounding competition. So I suppose, how would you differentiate yourself to competitors? And do you, do you even have many competitors? Would you say you have quite a unique product with a niche market or where would you place yourself in the market? Yeah. So this is another good question. And I think another mis mistake that a lot of founders make, you, you should definitely look at what your competitors are doing. Um, but you shouldn't really bother yourself with the different, like 
it's 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 hard it's a hard dilemma in in terms of what things in terms of your competition do you focus on because i think people are far too worried in the early day about being copied and beyond their competitors are going to steal their ideas um i think stay in your own lane mostly um you know keep tabs on the competitors to make sure you know kind of what they're doing but we kind of built a product that's so unique in of itself and isn't based on any other company that we never have to worry about what they were doing and maybe we looked at the marketing of different language learning companies to know how they're kind of appealing to their customers but our product was was already so differentiated off the bat that we never really had to worry about it and i think that really was beneficial for us you know like i always hear founders that are like oh our competitors are doing this and we're so worried about it and like it i just think you shouldn't worry about your competitors they're probably not going to steal your idea if you don't have an idea you know like one has to come before the other um and if you came up with your idea from something in the market and worked backwards then differentiation is essential um but if you came up with your idea not based on anything that exists stay in your own lane and just don't worry about anything else um because you're doing your own thing um and i think that's probably a better way to do it like because people often think they can reverse engineer something that already exists and the problem is is that it doesn't have to be just a little bit better to take off it has to be a lot better like if there's a pre-existing company that has some value proposition and you think well we could do that but add this one thing and that could be an entire company it almost never works out like that um peter teal has this idea that your 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 thing your technology has to be 10 times better than anything else that exists for it to do anything because 10 times is basically like the inertia it will take for people to migrate from the thing they're using to your product so it has to just be so much better um i'm not sure that answers your question because it's hard to differentiate it and it depends on where you came about your product from um it is important to be different um but i think just don't worry about your competitors too too much just focus on building your product for your customer base um and i, I think that's generally the right right advice yeah, it definitely seems to be quite a unique product, though. I personally haven't seen anything like it before. So, so far, I'm sure staying in your own lane has has worked out pretty well. Um, but you touched on this earlier, and it was the 80-20 principle. And I, I read something about this on your website, and it said that the top 1,000 most frequently used words make up about 85% of speech, which is quite a remarkable statistic. And it just does go to show how useful this software can be for anyone learning a new language. So I'm wondering, I suppose, do you plan on adding more languages to your website in future? And if so, this is probably a bit of a tricky question, but I'd love to know how you actually go about implementing an entirely new language into this software. If you could maybe give us an idea about what work is required for this to happen. Sure. Um, so we have proprietary language models that we've built. These are machine learning systems that basically are a large amount of data related to that language. So we at the moment have a Spanish language model and a French language model. And every time you want to build a new language, there's multiple steps to it and there's multiple stages in that system. And I, I won't go into all of it, but depending on how similar our language is, so like French, Spanish, Italian, they're Latin languages, the syntax is very similar. And um, there's a lot of overlap in those language models. So when we put out a Spanish script that's edited by our translators and, and comes back, we feed that script back into our system and it gets slightly better. 
So it's always learning and improving in a given language. But the problem with going to a new language, say like German, the syntax is very, very different. And it's very, it's just a much harder language to do. We would have to get our base language model and train it on lots of German data. The Spanish model just wouldn't work for it because the syntax is the same. So what you'd have to do is you have to get lots of English sentences, lots of German sentences, and you have to train a system on how to match up those sentences at those words. Um, as I said, for French and Spanish, it works a lot easier, but for German, Japanese, Mandarin word, languages that just have a very different syntax, very different grammar, very different organization, they need new like machine learning language models. Those are built by our CTO, Ushin, who is an absolute genius, and he handles all the development of all of those language models. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how we do it. I don't know if that's the best answer because a lot of it is kind of our proprietary systems that we've built out and it isn't, isn't public. Um, but a lot of it is working closely with a group of translators in that language and using the data that they produce to train our language models that becomes more effective at doing the actual weaving itself. Great, yeah, it sounds like there's definitely quite a lot of complex methodology that goes behind implementing implementing those languages, but um, that's very impressive. Um, so I guess I just have one last question for you. It's quite a casual one, um, but I suppose if you had a piece of advice for someone looking to start their own company, what would it be? Yeah, this, this is tough. Um, so I guess the first one is do it. A lot of people just don't do it. So um, do it, but I guess the easiest way to do it, I think is to start really, really, really small. Like lots of people try and build a very average product for a large group of people before one person just says, I love this. You know, like the, one of the best proxies that I've heard for um, startup success is the amount of people that will just organically word of mouth tell you about a product. Like when you have a friend that says, look, I'm using this thing. It's amazing. I'm getting so much value out of it. You should use it. That's how great startups are born because it's just naturally organic word of mouth. That's from producing a product that's so good that people tell their friends about it. Um, Seth Godin has this idea that I love, which is you only need 100 true fans. So you don't need a huge audience. You need only a very, very small cohort, but they absolutely love your idea. So I guess the thing to do in the early days is to be, again, be very narrow, be very focused, but just try and solve one problem very well. One very, very small problem. It could be the smallest thing in the world and you can scale outwards uh, horizontally from there, but just I think focus and be narrow and be focused is the thing that people do poorly because I think you have as an entrepreneur, the grandest ambition to change the world. And what people don't realize is the way people change the world is by having 10 people love your product, having 100 people love your product, and then 1,000 and then 10,000. It just doesn't work if you have 1,000 people that kind of like it and are sort of using it, but it doesn't really solve their problems. And the product isn't really re like um, responding to them on an emotional level. They're not addicted to it. They don't want to tell their friends about it. Um, so just be hyper fixated on one problem. Um, as narrow as possible. And I think it can never be as, like it's never too small, it's always too big. So you might think like, who cares about solving a problem for 10 people? But once you solve a problem for 10 people, then you can do 20, then you can do 30, then you can do 40. But the more that you hyper fixate on those early customers and just build a product that they love, um, the easier it is to scale. 
so don't do any scaling until you have a product people love. Um, that was a huge mistake we made. Um, we lost maybe a good year in terms of proper development of building a product that was quite average um, because we had the positive feed forward loops of winning these competitions, getting some user feedback, that sort of thing. Really, we should have been much more focused. We should have found a cohort of people that loved their product and we should have built the perfect thing for them. Um, and I really think that is that is the number one thing people make a mistake on is they their grand ambition is to go too wide, too narrow, and they make an average product for an average person. Um, build a very specific product for a very specific person that they love um, and that they'll tell their friends about for free. I think that's that's one of the things that I would do. Yeah, that's some great advice for anyone looking to go into entrepreneurship. So thank you for all of that insight. I'm definitely personally really impressed with your product and I could also definitely do with some brushing up on my Spanish since I've left school. So I'm gonna to have to give Weave a go myself. Thank but you. thank you so much for today. It was great being able to speak with you. It's been a pleasure, been lots of fun. Um, I hope you do check it out. And if anyone else wants to learn Spanish, um, at the moment we just have Spanish, we'll be expanding to French and other languages soon. Uh, but please do check out the app. We're really, really excited about it. And um, it should be on the app store within about two weeks. So that's also quite exciting. Great to hear. Well, that's amazing. Thanks so much, Evan. Thank you.